welcome to the next episode in our Red Talks podcast series. As you know from our first episode with Matt's lovely wife Karen, we have a bit of a habit of calling in favours from our famous family members to participate in our podcast. So as to not break tradition, this week's guest is my Uncle David, more commonly known as Dave Woods, sports commentator on football and rugby league for the BBC, BT Sport and Five Live. Hello, Uncle David. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you, Megan. And obviously, I've known you all your life. Uh, <laughs> so, hello again. And Matt just met. Morning. So, um, we, we've got a lot of catching up to do. Absolutely. But I'm sure we will in the next half an hour or so. So, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that the main reason we've got you on here today is because Matt is desperate to chat about football with you. Um, being stuck in an office five days a week with people that aren't as into football as he is. Um, so, before you guys get into the whole football commentator chat, we'd just like to touch a little bit on your early life first. Yeah. Obviously, I'm family, so I know, you know, the basic kind of um, gist of your upbringing from various anecdotes of you and my mum over the years. So I'll let Matt kind of handle this chat. Um, So Matt, over to you. (laughs) Hi, David, and welcome. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, Really excited about this chat. Um, I know you're a seasoned uh, podcaster and presenter yourself, so please bear with us if we make any rookie mistakes. No, that's um, good. That's what that's what podcasts are all about. It's, <laughs> it's raw and it's real exactly. and it's human. And so. also, I must confess, my knowledge of rugby league is a bit limited, so we might have to focus more on the football side of the chat, if that's all right with you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to disappoint you at some point down the line, because I've not actually done any football for about five years. Have you not? Uh, no, I did. I, I've always been rugby. I, always, I was brought up as a rugby league supporter uh-huh. by my dad, uh, even though we lived in Bolton, which if you don't know the geography, rugby league has a very specific geography. So in Wigan, for example, rugby league is an absolute religion. You can't go in any pub or club without being chatted about (laughs) rugby league. Whereas 12 miles down the road in Bolton, Hardly anybody watches the game. It's bizarre. Um, anyway, so I brought, brought up as a, as a rugby league fan uh, and always wanted to be a rugby league reporter mm-hmm. uh, and I kind of fell into accidentally doing football. So I was working for Five Live and uh, covering rugby league and northern sport for Five Live and one of the commentators actually had a crash. He was okay, it was fine, but he had a crash on the way to a football game. Burnley against Bury was the match. <laughs> uh, it sticks in my head. And they rang me up and said, you are literally the only person who can get there. So you are tonight going to be our football commentator. So I went wow. and did the commentary and it was okay. And they said, right, you're now a football commentator. And I went, Oh, right. Okay. So go with the flow. And um, before you know it, I end up doing loads of football. Um, I've done five football World Cups. Wow. Uh, I've I, I worked for Channel 5 as their main football commentator <laughs> for about three or four years. <laughs> Lots of football experience with five live down the years. Uh, commentated on Match of the Day. Uh, never actually worked for BT. Uh, whoever does my Wikipedia page, and I'm not sure who it is, I've never worked <laughs> for BT. So, um, yeah. So um, should have checked actually, that in advance. That, Apologies. Yeah. <laughs> No worries. Accidental, accidental. And you know what? I mean, honest admission here, never really got football in the way I get rugby league. I always used to say rugby league makes my heart beat. Football pays the mortgage. Um, And when they made me the rugby league correspondent at the BBC about three, four years ago, ahead of a World Cup, which is happening at the end of this year, Mm -hmm. um, then that was the point where I said, well, I'm going to stop doing football. I'm going to concentrate entirely on rugby league. But I've got lots of football anecdotes for you from World Cups and old firm derbies and hearts clashes and stuff like that, trips up to Aberdeen. You know, I I especially enjoyed the Scottish football um, that we did for uh, uh, three or four years. So, yeah. 
yeah, that's where we're at. That's great. No, no, that's really, really interesting. And actually, I'm interested in what you said there about rugby league versus football and rugby league making your, your heartbeat, you know, that. So can you elaborate a bit more on that in, in terms of how you feel about it as a sport? Because for me, I'm a Southern softy, um, you know, don't really know much. I know a bit about rugby union, enjoy the rugby union side, but I don't know a huge amount about rugby league. So it'd be really interesting to hear from you as to why you feel so passionately about that. Um, well, I mean, I, my dad took me to my first game when I was two years of age, right. so I cannot remember that first yeah. game because I was only two. But equally, I cannot remember a time when rugby league was not a part of my life yeah. because from that moment on, you know, I was going with my dad, went to my first, we've got a Challenge Cup final coming up this weekend. Yes. And my dad my dad took me to my first one in 1974. <laughs> uh, and so this weekend is my 49th consecutive Challenge Cup final, which is in one way something to be proud of, but in another the way you're thinking crikey that makes me quite old if I've been to 49 cup finals um but yeah the thing I love about rugby league is it 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 represents the communities in which it's played mm-hmm. um it is a proper working class sport if that's not an old-fashioned concept these days it's something that people love you know it's it's not something they do it's something they love and they live and the players on the field I don't think there is a tougher sport than rugby league um because you know um, and you know, due respect to rugby union but the players who've come from rugby union to rugby league say wow you know wow and you hear a lot of top flight rugby union players talking in awe about the rugby league players because it's fast it's moving all the time it's physical. You've got to have tons of courage just to get over the whitewash because you know you're going to get hurt during yeah. a game. I've never played it, by the way. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a coward. I'm not, I'm not brave. <laughs> but those who do, they know they're going to get hurt. There's some fantastic skill. People just take a look at it on the telly and think, oh, it's all barge and push. Mm-hmm. It's much more than that. Uh, and I'd, I'd recommend people to have a look at any, any rugby league that comes on the telly to just try and understand what's going on because there's a lot of skills. There's a lot of flair. There's a lot of pace. There's a lot of courage. There's a lot of big hits. And to me, it, it just encompasses so much, so much. And, you know, you've got to be honest to play it. And it's an honest sport. I suppose it comes down to that, really. That's brilliant. Well, I'm definitely converted now. So I'll, def- I'll have to watch the uh, final at the weekend <laughs> and have a listen and, and see, uh, see how they get on. I was going to say, is that some yeah. homework for us then? Go away so, and yeah. watch a few rugby and league matches. Obviously, <laughs> this is obviously being recorded now, but before that game, we'll mm. likely go out after that game. But any thoughts about... That in terms of predictions and how that's likely to go? Oh, well, there you've hung me up to dry, haven't you? Because uh, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give you a prediction now and completely the opposite. What we're looking forward to this weekend is Wigan are, you know, a lot of people who don't know Rugby League will have heard of Wigan because they dominated uh, 88 to 95. They won eight consecutive Challenge Cups in the days when there were only four channels on television. So a Saturday afternoon watching a Challenge Cup final was a bit of a national uh, thing. It wasn't just a Rugby League thing. So they became household names, a lot of those players, Martin of Fire, Ellery Hanley, Andy Gregory, you know, even now they're probably more famous yeah. than a lot of the rugby league players that are going about these days. Um, so because of that reputation, they probably go into this final as favourites. You know, people are, oh, Wigan, they must be favourites. And they probably are on current form, but Huddersfield are not far behind them. So yeah. what we are expecting is a really, really good game. Huddersfield haven't won the Cup since 1953. Uh, so, you know, there's a bit of bit of heartbeat there about that. Wigan are looking for a 20th Challenge Cup win, which would be a record-extending thing. So either way, you're going to have a bit of history written, whatever happens. That's great. I look forward to that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and also, I wanted to just touch a bit on, you know, obviously, you're a commentator, a sports commentator, um, you, and you've 
covered a number of World Cups and, and massive games and things like that. Be interested to kind of get your perspective behind the scenes of what it's like to be a sports commentator. Any kind of memorable moments? Obviously, does the commentator's curse actually exist? Um, and, well, and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure whether we are directly responsible for some of the mistakes, um, but um, it d- definitely happens um, when you're talking about how great a player is and then he drops the ball or he kicks it out yeah. of the play or something. That definitely happens. Behind the scenes, I think a lot of it is about preparation. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a, lo- a lot of people don't realise what's going on. I'll talk you through a TV game because that's probably the more interesting. So a TV game, there's a lot of preparation goes in. Uh, for this game on Saturday, I know both teams, but I'll probably put about four or five hours of prepping to make sure and all the stats, all the stories, all the backstories, because as a commentator, mm. certainly on the TV, radio, you're just describing the action. Nobody mm. can see what's happening. You're just, just describing the action. Television commentator is more hard to, to kind of quantify because people can see it. So what you're there to is add to the occasion. And that is to add to the stories, to tell people the stories about a certain player. You know, if somebody scores a try, that's his 15th try of the season is a boring stat, but you know what? He broke his legs six months ago. He's only just come back from an injury and there he is scoring a try is more of a story. So that's the kind of thing you're looking for. Uh, so that, all that prep goes in uh, ahead of the game during the game. What people probably don't appreciate is that when you're commentating, you're actually part of a conversation um, on the whole production. So what people hear at home is my voice and the summarizer's voice talking about the game what we're hearing is this rattling conversation going on in our heads from the director led by the director who's sitting in a truck just outside the ground looking at all his screens all his cameras are pointing at different things he's deciding at each given moment which camera he's going to click up onto transmission Uh, so he's talking to his cameramen or camera women right number eight camera eight give me this camera seven give me this and we're hearing this Uh, and that's good from the point of view from our point of view if he'll say oh Prince Harry's in the crowd, camera seven, find Prince Harry. Oh, you've got Prince Harry. So I, as a commentator, know we're going to get a shot of Prince Harry any time now, so I can start formulating a line in my head. Um, He'll also, you know, call in the replays, whether we do get replays, the angles of the replays. So all of that goes on in your head, and you can, you kind of, it sounds more difficult than it is. Um, It's, you get used to it. You know, every commentator on TV has it, so, you know, uh, and we're not we're not all um, scientists or, or, yeah. or rocket science uh, <laughs> experts. So we're all capable of dealing with it. But that's what goes on in the head. So you're hearing that all the time. And you as a commentator can call for things. So we also have our stats in front of us. So we can say, oh, look at that stat. That looks good. So I can press a button to the director and say, put that stat up on screen. Uh, and he may or may not do it or she she may or may not do it. And then when that stat comes up, you go, look at that stat. And you're, you you made it look clever because kind of, <laughs> it's almost as if you've predicted what people are going to be seeing. So that's that's what happens. It's like standing on top of a cliff. I, I, I similar, make it similar to standing on top of a cliff and talking to someone three feet in front of you while the wind's howling and someone's trying to shout at you behind. <laughs> and you're trying to listen to what's going on behind you, the wind's howling, but you're talking. The most important thing is you're talking to the person in front of you. So that's kind of a brief insight to what we do. That's amazing. So much preparation that goes into it, you know, before. Yeah, prep, prep is key. I think yeah. prep is key in any walk of life. Absolutely. You know, uh, people say, do you get nervous? I only get nervous when I know I've not prepped. If I've prepped, I tend not to. I mean, I used to, you know, when I first started doing it, I used to get nervous. But these days, if I've not prepped, then I get nervous. But uh, otherwise, hopefully, so hopefully on Saturday, I'm not going to be nervous. And what, and what about what about then, I suppose, linked to that, when the kind of unexpected happens? Have you had any moments 
throughout your career where you've just you know had a kind of an awkward moment or a memorable moment where you've gone wow that you know was totally out of the ordinary um yeah quite a few of those <laughs> um and you know people talk about you the thing that commentators are always reaching for is that line you know so when something happens that is amazing mm -hmm. you have that line they think it's all over it is now is the most memorable of them all. And I think some commentators are guilty of going into a game or going into a, a situation with a, my, a line in mind. If this happens, I'm going to say this. And you, I can hear it, and it doesn't sound spontaneous. There's no way that Kenneth Wollstonehome, and I apologise to Scottish listeners here, could have <laughs> predicted that England situation, that, 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 that at 3-2 there would have been people running onto the pitch and that, the fourth goal would have gone in at that moment. He could not have scripted that line. So the naturalness of that line is what takes it through. Uh, one of my favourites is an Australian commentator, um, Ray Warren, um, who, who's, who's kind of semi-retired now, but in his pomp was brilliant at just giving you that line. And uh, there was a game, big game, state of origin, it's called in Australia, New South Wales against Queensland, biggest game in Australia. 1-1 in the series, Queensland are winning. Last seconds of the game, New South Wales get the ball on their own line, just throw it, throw it, throw it, run, 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 break, 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 score a try at the other end. And Ray Warren goes, that's not a try, that's a miracle. <laughs> and you, you just, the hair stand up on the back of your neck, you know. So um, w w when something like that happens, you hope you have the ability to just poof, produce mm. a line to match the moment. And we don't always do that, unfortunately. But when you do, it's that's when you get the satisfaction. And, and last quick one for me, but just before I hand back over to, to Megan, but have you got any um, kind of favourite games that you've commentated on? Yeah, I've got one favourite that when I retire will be the one that I will always look back on. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to commentate on several old firm derbies, always enjoyed at Celtic Park and at Ibrox, always enjoyed those. I've done a, um, a, a Champions League semi-final between uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona at the Nou Camp, which was fantastic. You know, there's lots of Premier League game, big nights in Europe, World Cup matches involving Brazil and Italy and the big names, etc. Mm. But undoubtedly, the, the best memory I will ever have was a Rugby League Cup, uh, World Cup semi-final in New Zealand, in Auckland, and it was Tonga against England in the semi-final. And in, in, in Auckland, there are more Tongans live in Auckland. There are displaced uh, community, but there's more Tongans live in Auckland than actually live in Tonga. Yeah. It's a huge community. It's underrepresented. They feel like outsiders in that city. So when their rugby league team came together and played in a World Cup and were fantastic, suddenly they had this thing that they could unite behind. It's a very religious community. It's a very family-driven community. It's very proud of its roots. So inside that stadium that day, and everybody who was supporting Tonga wore red, and 95% of the people in there were wearing red flags waving hymns being sung the noise was literally deafening there was one point in the commentary when i said something and expected my co-commentator to say something and he didn't and when i looked around he was talking i just couldn't hear him even with the headphones on and even though he was talking into a lip mic so the noise that day the emotion that day the match was fantastic because england were winning by a canter and then tonga came back and back and back and almost snatched it at the end and even now it brings uh, you know the hairs up on the back of my neck and this shows the, the the you know why you should always attend live events because i recorded that you know when we came back to england we'd recorded all the matches and went straight to watching that and i thought it's good 
but it's not as good as it was on the day. And it, it yeah. was just it was just awe inspiring that day. It was fantastic, you know. Absolutely. If anything could move you, that could, yeah, yeah. That sounds brilliant. Wow. See, this is why I wanted to get you on here, Uncle David, because I just knew how passionate you are about commentating and about sport and that would really shine through. Um, but aside from sport, you've had such varied strands to your career. So I know that you've worked and trained as a Samaritans counsellor, a hypnotherapist. Yeah, I'm reading this at the moment because there's so many different things that you've done. <laughs> I'm literally reading off a list. Um, you've yeah. qualified, you've recently qualified as a PT and you've now ventured into uh, joint ownership of a gym. So yeah. Did, yeah. did some aspects of your career choices come from a quest for kind of personal improvement in terms of your own health and well-being? Uh, the hypnosis was just here today, gone tomorrow. That was just, uh, was just a curiosity. <laughs> and I went on a two-week course. And it, it, was, you know, it was fun and everything, but that was okay. The Samaritans, I'll tell you where the Samaritans came from. Um, in 2013, my best mate passed away. He was, mm. um, he was my best man at my second marriage, uh, Oatsy. And, you know, a really good mate, really good colleague. We, we went all over the world together covering football and rugby league. And he was just my best mate. And he died. And it was quite sudden in that he took ill on the Sunday. It, it, you know, he rang me that day and it sounded like he was under the weather starting with flu. By the following Sunday, he died. It was a very rare condition that went, led to his heart. The virus led to his heart. And he was in hospital for quite a while. Uh, for, sorry, for four days of that. Um, and I went down uh, to see him um, and went down with the family. So he had two young kids at the time, wife, two young kids. Uh, and went down with the family and um, then... It looked as though he was improving. And so I came back up north to do a match on a Sunday and just got to the match. And then we got the phone call to say he died. So I went back down again to be with the family. And my experience of that was obviously up to sadness because it was my best mate. But my experience of that was just being around the family and thinking, I just feel helpless here. I just, I, I don't know what to do. You know, I was there because I knew that Oatsy would have done it the other way around because he was always the grown up in our relationship. He was always the mature one. You know what I mean? Um, and I'm thinking I'm trying to play the Oatsy role, but I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know how to help. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Um, so after that, I thought, well, I don't, I want to avoid that situation again. So I'll, I'll, I'll what can I do to do that? So I thought I'll train as a counselor. So I trained as a, as a mental health counselor and got qualifications, got a couple of qualifications and really enjoyed that. It was a real insight into lots and lots of different things. Uh, and then when I got the qualifications, I thought, well, I don't want to be a professional counselor, but I want to keep this counseling aspect of going. So the Samaritans uh, was an opportunity that I thought this would be great. Um, and if anyone's thinking about being a, a Samaritans listening volunteer, you don't have to train as a counselor. You know, you don't, don't think that way is blocked. Anyone can go along. They give you their own training. And in some regards, what you do as a Samaritan listener is different to what you would do as a counselor. There are different, so a lot of it's similar, but some things are, are quite markedly different. So yeah, I started as a, as a Samaritan's volunteer and you know, it was, it was really, really fulfilling. And what that whole episode kind of taught me was the value of listening. You know, as a, as a Samaritan top and bottom is it, you are listening. You're not there to give advice. You're not there to say, this is what you should do. You are just listening. And very rare it is in society that we have people that we can talk to and they will just listen without any judgment. We're all guilty of if someone's telling us a story, we're thinking, oh, I've got a story that that, that, that matches this. And, and when he's finished, when I detect that that's finished, I'm going to jump in with my story, you know, and we all, we all do that. Uh, and that, if you're telling the story and then someone jumps in with their story, sometimes even before you've finished, you feel a little bit diminished, don't you? You feel a bit crushed because, uh, you know, but if someone's there just to listen to you, 
that is the most valuable gift you can give anyone. And without judgment, you know, uh, and, and what you get trained as a Samaritan is to kind of bring that out more. So when you ask questions, there are open questions that you reflect back on what people have said. You're not saying, oh, that happened to me. Or, oh, yeah, I can see what you're saying there because this, this, whatever. You're just getting them to tell the story. And that's where um, the, 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 the talking counselling really works because people very rarely and suicide. I mean, with, with, um, with counseling, you wouldn't necessarily approach the idea of suicide with the Samaritans. You are openly encouraged to talk mm-hmm. to them about whether they are thinking about suicide. Mm-hmm. And very often the answer was no, because the vast majority I would say of people who ring the Samaritans are not suicidal or at that point at that stage. But if they are, you know, who else can you have that conversation with? Who else can you say, yeah, I am suicidal. And them not panic or, you know, freak out or start telling you you're stupid, but just sit and listen and talk you through that. And very often that prevents people going down that route because they can examine this feeling of suicide. You know, what would happen afterwards? How would I feel in the process of doing it uh, and all the rest of it? So, yeah, I, 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 in the end, I had to give it up because my my job uh, with a rugby league um, it sounds trite, doesn't it? But my job with the, with the rugby league uh, correspondence role became more and more unpredictable, so I couldn't commit to shifts. But it's something that I would definitely like to go back to in years to come. Wow. Well, I, I remember Otzi from your wedding, and he gave yeah. a cracking speech. And he did. I remember seeing him and his wife there, and I, we were all so sorry to hear about what happened. Um, yeah. But I suppose if you can kind of take one thing from it, it's the fact that you've then gone on to do this. So, yeah. you know, like, and kind of like remembering him as you do it as well, which is great. Um, yeah. I actually tried to sign up myself to be a Samaritan's counsellor, but it was sadly just before COVID hit, so then they couldn't do the yeah. training. So I, it's something that I'd love to go and do again. You've kind of re-inspired me as well there, listening yeah, to that. Absolutely. So thank you. Um, you know? And in terms of the gym as well, I know like obviously you, you qualified as a PT now. Um, and you own your own gym. So that's something new again. And do you feel like kind of you get the chance to do that? Do you get, do you, are you able to balance that alongside commentating? Yeah, the gym runs itself really because we've right. got three PTs. It's a smallish gym um, and we have 20 members. We've capped at 20 members and we, we only have three classes. Well, we do four classes, but one of those is mine on a Sunday morning, which tends to be more a family thing really because all the heard. family come. Uh, but, it, but it's great. You know, it's fantastic. But yeah, and the, and so it's, it's a business that... You know, it's it's not going to make us millionaires any second now, but it looks after itself, and that's the mm. main thing. But that that came from, uh, we were, in fact, we we called at your grandma's house actually, Megan, on the way back from this holiday. But oh. m- myself and my wife were on holiday, and uh, m- my wife denies saying this because she said she would never be so cruel. But I have a distinct memory of her saying, "You're putting a lot of weight on. You need something to do something about it." So immediately I thought, right, well, we'll cut sugar. So I cut sugar out of my diet mm. on this cruise. Uh, which was a struggle, but it worked. Uh, on a cruise. Then, on a cruise, yeah. Because, was, I mean, that was it. It was like I could absolutely devour everything here, so I need to put some limits on it, so I will stop eating sugar, uh, cakes, biscuits, and everything. Uh, but I thought, but um, I'm going to take fitness seriously. Uh, so I did, and I thought, if I'm taking it seriously, I'm going to train in it. So I trained to be a PT, uh, two levels, level two and then level three to become a fully qualified PT, and that goes through nutrition and exercise. And I thought, well, you know, why not, why not put this into good practice as well? So um, that's how that, that began. That's great. And I know that, like you said, a lot of your Sunday classes are quite family orientated. I sometimes see on like my cousin Charlotte's Instagram, her and her partner Josh at the gym. And it's, it's nice. It seems like a really feel good class. So if I'm ever down that way, I'll pop along to one myself sometime. 
You must do, yeah. So uh, my wife comes, uh, obviously Charlotte, my daughter and her, her husband and uh, Josh, her husband's mum and dad come regularly. And we have two or three regular members who come and the best bit about it is having a coffee afterwards. We have 40 minutes, 45 minutes of real hard work, but then we have a coffee afterwards and, it's, and a good chat. So it's great. It's a great sounds, way to start a Sunday. Sounds, great, yeah. sounds like the perfect Sunday yeah, morning, absolutely. really. And I know that yeah. a lot of um, kind of what you've just been talking about, I think is reflected in your reading choice. I know you've always had a real love for reading um, and in particular, kind of like self-help books um, and you've recommended a lot of self-help books too um, so I was just wondering do you ever have aspirations to write a book of your own potentially like you know um, no, a self-help book no coming from- no, <laughs> <laughs> no um, cut that one I, off quickly I don't, I, don't, I don't I think you know having read a lot of self-help psychology books I mm. think you read some of them and you think, you know, this this person's just written this book to make some money and this is a, a theme that has been extrapolated well beyond, you know, you know, you, 10 pages in, you think, I'm not getting anything more out of this if I carry on reading it. Mm. Some, of them are, some of them are good. But I think the essence of them all boils down to the fact that, um, you know, your life, your approach to life, um, well, it's not the events and circumstances that dictate how you live your life it's your response to those circumstances that, and I think a lot of the self-help books are kind of centered around that uh, really. And once you've grasped that, that it's your response, uh, you know, I heard that on the Samaritans time and again, uh, people responding in different ways to different, to the same circumstances. So um, whatever happens to you, it's, it's your take on it. You know, you can choose to be unhappy. You can choose to be, uh, negative or you can choose to be positive and you can choose to look for the positives. So that is one thing. I mean, my wife every day, um, writes down a thing about, you know, the five positives that she's had every day. And that's something I kind of adhere to as well, or try to, um, these days I probably read the Stoics a lot more. And if you've never read any Stoicism, I think that's really worthwhile. I've got a book, the daily Stoic, that's a good entry point, the daily Stoic. So this is the Romans, Marcus Aurelius and, um, Seneca and those kind of people who basically their philosophy is you can't control the uncontrollables, that life is just about what you can control. So focus on what you can control and you will be much more content. So that's good. But I will, there was one, there's one self-help book that I think is, well, it's not a book, but it's a theory. It's a, it's a, it's a system that I will share that I think is absolutely brilliant. Uh, Especially if uh, like I am at the moment in an area of real stress and like lots of things to do. And you wake up every morning thinking, Oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And you go to bed at night and you and turning and this is a system called the ivy lee system and ivy lee is a guy uh from who was in the united states back in the early 1900s i think it was uh, and i think he was the father of public relations um but there you go that's just an aside but he came up with a system um at the behest of, of one of the big you know the big steel magnets in in america who said come up with a system that helps people and this is the ivy lee system okay and this is brilliant so the night that at night before you go to bed you write down everything you've got to do, everything you want to achieve the day after, everything you want to do, you write down and you might have a list of about 20 things uh, and you think, right, those, those are 20 things. But then you look at them and you evaluate the most, the six most important things and you write them in order, right? This, 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 and this, these are the six most important things for me to do tomorrow. And you write them in order. 
and you can make it in time order or importance order. So for example, at the moment we're moving house. So I might think, right, I have to speak to the solicitor tomorrow. That'll be number one. That's, that's an, that's a, you know, that I have to do that. Number two, I'm, I'm maybe not been exercising as much as I could have been this last week. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to exercise tomorrow. I'll keep myself focused on that. Number three, big challenge cup final coming up. I've got to do some prep on that. So that's number three. I have to do that. And you go through a list of uh, to six. Now, if uh, of just those three, I'd think, well, if the solicitor's most important, he's not going to be until nine o'clock. I get up at six, I have breakfast by seven, I'm ready to go. So I tell you what, at seven, I'll do some prep. Seven till nine, I'll do some prep. Nine o'clock, so that's number one. Nine o'clock, I'll ring the solicitor. He's just in there. And before everyone else starts mithering, so that's number two. Number three, after I've run game, I'll be finished at half 10. I'll do some exercise, go for a run, get on the run machine, go to the gym or whatever for an hour. So you've got that list. And the way it works is it means that you can have a good night's sleep. You're not tossing and turning, thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? You've already got that list ready. When you wake up the next morning, you're not in a panic of, right, all this to do, where do I start? You've already got your agenda. And because it's written down, it's a contract with yourself. So, you know, that makes it even more focused for you to do. And a lot of people will say, well, it's just like writing a list. It's different to writing a list because you've got a list of 20 things. You sit down at your desk, you look at your list and you think, oh, that's quite easy. So I'll do that. Boom, tick. Oh, that's quite easy. I'll do that. Boom, tick. And at the end of the day, you've got 12 things ticked off and you're feeling good about yourself. But actually, the most important things, which perhaps needed a bit more self-discipline and a bit more focus, you've not done. But because you've got those now written down as the six most important things, you have that focus and it, it really works. I mean, I don't do this every day. I don't do it every week, but I would highly recommend it when you're in a period of like loads on, loads yeah. on. It's a really good way of clearing your mind, not lying up all night, wake, tossing and turning, wake, you're not waking up in a panic and you do, it really is a good way of getting things done. So the Ivy Lee method Definitely is my have recommendation. Have a look at that and adopt that, I think. Yeah, I saw yeah. you writing it down there, Matt. Yeah. I was about to scribble it myself <laughs> and I could see that you were. And I can now understand why a lot of our family members during times of stress phone you. My mum, like <laughs> right. when she's been working stre- like quite high, highly stressful jobs before, she'll come off a chat with you and I can just almost see the relief in her face. She feels so much better Ooh. for it. I, um, I suspect I suspect the other way. I suspect she sees that phone ringing and it's my name comes up. I think the stress comes up because there are, the, 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 I, I, I think I've, shared more stress with her than she has with me down the years 50 50 probably but no that's great and i'm glad you took a note of that one matt (laughs) yeah so i guess um just following on from that then obviously you're extremely busy you know stressful life at the moment so much going on big cup final um at the weekend kind of what's next for you in terms of your next challenge you know what have you got kind of down the line um that's coming up for you i don't know i don't know um um, well, we've got the World Cup. In terms of work, we've got the yeah. World Cup in October, November. That's going to be huge. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be one of those where you're literally a game every day. Um, I, it's brilliant. I absolutely love the World Cups. And the best thing about this rugby league, and this again is why I'm so proud of our sport, is it's it's a rugby league World Cup that is, there's a men's tournament, there's a women's tournament, there's a wheelchair tournament. Mm-hmm. And if you've never if you've never seen wheelchair rugby league, have a look at that. That is that is something else. But all three tournaments, for the first time ever in a world sporting event, are being treated at the same level. All the participants are getting the same money for playing. The winning prize is the same uh, in terms of financial reward yeah. for all, whether it's a man or woman or somebody in the wheelchair. Wheelchair rugby league is the most inclusive sport in the world. It's men, it's women, it's those who need wheelchairs, who use wheelchairs, 
and for able-bodied people as well. Anyone. We can all play wheelchair rugby league. You might not want to when you've seen it because it is brutal, <laughs> but we can all do it. And there's a great story there in that wheelchair rugby league. And there's two brothers from Halifax and one had meningitis as a young child and I think had a, an arm and a leg amputated. And his brother was completely able-bodied. And they searched for a sport that they could both play at the same level without one feeling, in quotes, handicapped, the other one having an advantage. And wheelchair rugby league was it. And in fact, uh, the the young fellow who who, um, uh, suffered the amputees when he was younger um, was, was probably the better player. And he went on. Uh, to he's gone on to play uh, wheelchair basketball in Spain. He's a professional wow. wheelchair basketball player in Spain. So you know that's that's why that's why this World Cup's going to be fantastic because all those stories will come out. There's some brilliant stories of people who are, who will be taking part. So that'd be good. That'd be good. Brilliant. And it'll be it's not coming to Scotland unfortunately, uh, but it's going up to Middlesbrough. There's a game in Middlesbrough. There's a game oh. down in London. Semi final match down in London at the Arsenal Stadium, which will probably involve England. Um, uh, Newcastle, the opening days at Newcastle, England against Samoa on October the 17th or something like that. And then it runs all the way through. It finishes the week before the Football World Cup starts. I was going to say, is it yeah. overlap, just the week yeah. before? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we're yeah. looking forward to that then. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And so I guess one last question. Well, not one last. We have we have one that we ask everybody. But my final thing that I want to know is what advice would you give to a young person, say my age, wanting to start out in sports journalism now? And does the career path that you chose to take still make sense? The career path I took doesn't make sense, unfortunately, <laughs> because the world's changed so much. Mm. Um um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it was a difficult job to get into when I was a young lad in 1837, when printing had just been invented. It feels like that. Uh, now it's, it's, it's almost, almost impossible. I mean, I, I taught at Huddersfield University uh, for a couple of years, teaching aspirants, young sports journalists. Um, and of all the people I've taught, and there were some good kids, um, of all of them, there's probably three or four who are actually sports journalists. Now, one of them um, is is actually Claire, is uh, one of the senior producers at Five Live. So on a weekly ah. basis, she's giving me orders, uh, which is which is quite interesting. There's another one who's the, now the chief executive at Hull FC. Uh, so there's one or two that have sprinkled around. But it's really difficult to get into because the old days, it used to be your local newspaper, your local radio station. Well, local newspapers barely exist these days. They're all centralised. Uh, they're, they're almost written by robots, um, it feels sometimes. Um, and local radio isn't quite the same breeding ground. BBC local radio is, but again, very, very difficult to get into that. So if you are a young person who wants to be a sports journalist, I would say determination is really important um, and be focused and you know prove that you want to do it. You've got to prove that you want to do it. And unfortunately, that means taking on some unpaid gigs at times um, at a younger age. Um, just to get that experience and just to get that portfolio, that CV together, um, and uh, yeah, and be focused. But but be aware that um, you see. I mean, when I started, I just wanted to be a newspaper writer. Yeah, I remember you. You walked yeah. into the local. Well, I don't remember. I wasn't born. Um, <laughs> I've been told uh, you walked into your local newspaper office and just basically said, 
give me a job, I'll work for free. So when you yeah. said like you've been there and done that, when you said sometimes it is taking on unpaid gigs, you're speaking from experience there. Well, I mean, I did get paid actually. I mean, I was very oh, lucky because oh. yeah, at school, at school, I mean, I won't bore you with the entire story, but at school, an English teacher when I was about 15 gave me a book and said, you'll re read that, you'll enjoy it. Mm. And I read it and I did enjoy it. And um, it was a, a book called There Is a Happy Land by Keith Waterhouse. And I thought, oh, well, I'll read more of this fellow because he seemed to encapsulate, it was all about a child growing up in a working class area, which was, it was in Leeds, I'm in Bolton, but it still encapsulated my experience so I read something else by him which got Billy Liar which you may have heard of much yeah. more famous film made of it uh, Tom Courtney etc in the 60s so Billy Liar uh, and that encapsulated uh, my spirit as a teenager <laughs> you know um, big dreams but not delivering kind of thing um, and I thought if this bloke knows so much same author Keith Waltrose so I thought, if this bloke knows so much about my childhood and my teens maybe he can predict what I'm going to be in the future and I found out he was a newspaper journalist at that stage for the Daily Mirror so I thought right I'm going to be a journalist for the Daily Mirror D decision made at 15 that's what I was going to be <laughs> um, so it's a case of how do you do this so yeah I, I got in touch with the local paper and said you know let me have a gig and they gave me a gig of writing a match report on a rugby league and then they gave me some local cricket and local football and that then transpired into being uh, working for the agency when I left and it was just radio it was uh, sorry it was just newspapers just newspapers but the agency did radio updates as well at sports games I had no interest in that no interest and then one week uh, and death is a recurring theme here I do apologise but one week my boss just dropped dead he dropped dead unexpectedly of a heart attack and so the message was uh, right it's not a case of whether you want to do it it's where you're going to do it this radio report the weekend uh, and they sent me to Preston North End against Swansea for BBC Radio Wales and that was my first match reports and I was absolutely scared to death terrified <laughs> and then they said right we're gonna, you're going to carry on doing radio and for the next year and a half it, I, I literally, if I found out on a Wednesday I was doing radio on the Saturday, I didn't sleep. It, you know, it, it literally terrified me. That's some great Saturday nights out because that rush of adrenaline mm. after all that pressure, you know, is fantastic. But that's just a kind of, and then, you know, you get more and more used to it. You get less and less scared of it and more enjoyment from it. And then that led me to going into radio because I thought, actually, I do enjoy this. So my advice would be, you know, pin, pin your colours to a mast, have that focus, but be prepared to deviate along the line as well. And when opportunities arise, recognise those opportunities and take them with both hands. Don't be shy about it. Don't, be, don't, don't let your lack of confidence let you down. If something is there and it's an opportunity, make the most of it. If it doesn't work, yeah, it doesn't work. But if it does work, it could lead to something else. So you never, never lose faith in yourself. Never let your nerves or self-doubt ever get in the way mm -hmm. of what you want to do, I would say. That's great. Some fantastic advice. advice there. And yeah, no harm in trying, basically. Absolutely. No, because yeah. you're the, you're the yeah. biggest judge of yourself. You know, mm, you yeah. think, oh, oh, I'm a failure here. And most other people either haven't noticed, don't care. You know, yeah. it's just you that gets wrapped up in all of this. Um, so don't let yourself be your biggest enemy, I would say. And obviously you've, you know, had a really successful and varied career. And last kind of question, I suppose, to kind of wrap up is just around in terms of how you operate. Have you got any kind of non-negotiable core values that you kind of live by day to day um, that's kind of got you to where you are today? Um, no, I'd love to say <laughs> hard work and dedication, but there's moments of laziness and <laughs> eye off the ball moments. So I can't say that. I would say the only non-negotiables in my life are, are loyalty and family. Yeah. I'd like to think of myself as being loyal mm. uh, and I've always had loyalty repaid. You know, I've worked for the BBC, either staff or freelance now for, well, since 2000. So that's 20 odd years, isn't yeah. it? Um, and they've always been loyal to me and I've mm. always been loyal to them. Um, 
Um, so loyalty is really, I think, really important. Uh, and but family, you know, um, family is more and more because as you get older, you realise. Certainly, as a younger bloke, I was probably selfish about career yeah. and and said yes to opportunities that didn't really work with the family. And um, you know, you look back on that and think. You know, I've missed so many Father's Days because I've been in in uh, football tournaments all over the world, and I didn't need to go to them all. You know, the the men's under seventeens in Argentina, I didn't need to go to that, <laughs> but um, but you go, you know. So um, yeah, I would say family is is massive. Family is really really important. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent agree with that. Yeah, and um, you've got a great family surrounding you. I'm not just, you know, speaking about myself here. Um, but no, you've got, you know, you've got your kids nearby, your stepsons, a little grandchild now. So it yeah. is lovely that you are able to spend more time as a family and enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and your grandma as well, Megan, is, is a huge inspiration. We won't go into the details. She but is, but don't make huge, me cry like, whilst we're recording. But yeah, she is. Um, yeah. yeah, no, so thanks so much for coming on anyway. It honestly feels like I've just sat down and had a coffee with you. My mum will be really yeah. jealous. So <laughs> no, we've, we've loved having you uh, chatting to us today. And it's just been really interesting because a lot of the answers to these questions I didn't know myself because it's the sort of right. things that you don't chat about when you're at like a, a family do or at a wedding. You don't sit down and ask, you know, um, what are your non-negotiables or how did you really start out? So it was just inter- interesting to hear those answers myself too. So thanks. Yeah. yeah well, it's really been lovely to be along and, and it's really been great to meet you, Matt, as well. Yeah, and, really uh, great and, to and, you and, and see you again, Megan. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks so much brilliant. for your time. Bye. Thank you. Good, time. Good, luck, good luck with the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a lot, See you. Thanks for listening to our Red Talks podcast. Please like, share and subscribe.